Father, you are the one that we praise. You're the one we adore. We're grateful for the healing that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing us from death to life. We're grateful for the grace that you bestow upon us. Not that we have earned anything, but wrath and punishment because of our sin. Yet through your grace and through your love, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and poured out your wrath upon him that we might know you, that we can get a glimpse of you, that we can experience you, that we can be united, we can be in union with the God of the universe, the God who created us, the God who is. Father, as we take these few minutes this morning to look into your word, to listen to what you have to say to us, I pray that you will just speak, that you'll make your presence known, that everyone in this place will have the sense and the knowledge that God Almighty is here and is worthy of our praise. We pray these things in your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Several months ago, we got together as a leadership team, husbands and wives, and we sat around the table and we said, if we can only do one thing, what is the one thing that we could do? So I will pose that question to you as a congregation, not just a group that was in there. What we were trying to ascertain, to determine is, all right, what are the non-negotiables for this congregation, what are the non-negotiables for Pendleton Street Baptist Church, soon to become known as West End Baptist Church? What are the, what are the, the, the things that we have to hold dear to, or the things that we have to hold in value and grasp with both hands in our behavior and in our thinking and in our knowledge, and in what order of priority would they go? And so uh, there's a lot of things that came up. I mean, missions is important. Would you agree? Telling the people of the world the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there is coming a day when there will be no longer missions when we're in the presence of God. Uh, prayer is essential and invite, vital in the life of a believer, in the life of a church. We need God to move and work, but there will be a time when we're with Him face to face and we experience His power and His presence unhindered. Uh, what, what is the... What, what is the, the core, the foundational, the key, most important thing for every believer and every church that follows God, not just this one? And the answer to that is worship. We worship. We exalt God and praise His name in all that we do and in every activity of our lives. That's our profession it is a value that we have. God is central. God is the, the destination of our affection, if you will. God whom we love. God whom we adore. God whom we worship. And so this morning, we're going to take a few minutes to learn some things about worship. To learn some things about who God has called us to be and actually who God is. The text that Stephen read this morning in First Chronicles chapter 16 was a portion of a song of praise, a song of worship. And the, 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 the events surrounding that, or you guys will be familiar with, um, that there came a time when the people of God, the Jews, had gotten very distant from God. The high priest at that time, his name was Eli. And Eli had become, and, and again, this is just description found in, uh, I believe this particular passage is First uh, Samuel chapter 6. It says, Eli had gotten heavy and blind and hard of hearing. Now the reason that it described him at his age and in his physical condition, because it also described his spiritual state. 
He had gotten lax. He had gotten to where he wasn't hearing from God. He had gotten to where he wasn't seeing God or worshiping God. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were abusing the temple sacrifice. They still had a, not temple sacrifice, tabernacle sacrifice. They still had a tabernacle. They still had the Ark of the Covenant of God in the Holy of Holies. They still received sacrifices, but there was no worship taking place. They were distanced from God. They were disobedient to God from the top down. Eli and his sons and permeating the children of Israel. Well, an enemy came, the Philistines. You guys will be familiar with the Philistines. Seems like the Jews are always fighting with them. They worshipped the god Dagon and other gods. And they came in battle against Israel. And Israel said, oh, we've got to do something. Let's go to war. And so Hophni and Phinehas leading the troops, they went to fight with the Philistines. And they were, in the old-fashioned way of saying it, my way of saying it, they were getting whooped. They were not doing well. They were losing people bad. And they said, what are we going to do? Oh, I know. We've got the Ark of God. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. Every time the Ark of the Covenant comes up, just like an Indiana Jones movie, it wins. And so, we, they didn't say Indiana Jones, but every time the Ark of the Covenant comes, God shows His power, and so, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. So they send a group back to the temple, tabernacle. They get the Ark of the Covenant, they bring it into the battle, and when the Jewish soldiers see the Ark of the Covenant coming out, they give this great shout. Here we are, we've got the presence of God. God's on our side, and the Philistines heard it. And the Bible says they quaked. They were afraid because now their God is with them. And yet the Philistine general spoke up to his men and he said, Hey guys, be men. Be courageous. Let's engage this battle and let's come back victorious. I've heard sermons on that, by the way, taken way out of context. This is a Philistine guy talking to his Philistine armies, fighting the people of God. But the people of God are in rebellion against God. And the battle is engaged. And the Israelites lose 30,000 people in one battle. Hophni and Phinehas, the two leading sons of Eli, are both killed in battle. And tragedy upon tragedy, the Ark of the Covenant... That box made to God's standard with the mercy seat on top of it representing the power and the presence of God with his people was taken by the Philistines. Now it was an eventful journey. They took it to Ashdod and there they put it in the temple of Dagon. (laughs) They soon realized their mistake. After they put the ark in the same temple as this false idol, they came back the next morning and the idol was on its face before the ark with his head, his hands, and his feet cut off. And they said, oh, the God of Israel is here and he's not happy with us and he has defeated our God Dagon. So they sent it to another Philistine city. There are five major Philistine cities. And they sent it to the other one. And the next city that they sent it to, they said, we don't want that thing here. As soon as the temple, I mean the ark, came into their city, people started getting sick. And those that didn't get sick got tumors. And they said, let's send this thing back home where it belongs. And so they put it on a cart, led by oxen or led by bulls. And they just let it go. And sure enough, God directed it back home. But it never made its way back to the tabernacle. Signifying the presence of God. Signifying the justice of God. It never made its way back to the tabernacle. It was picked up by a family who housed it. But finally now, David is prepared to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. 
So he goes and gets the ark and he brings it, starts to bring it back from Jerusalem. You guys will be familiar with the story. It's earlier found in, in First Chronicles. And on the way, one of those who are bringing the ark stumbles and falls and he touches the ark. And as soon as he touches the ark of the covenant, which was forbidden by God, they had staves, they had long handles, they had multiple people picking it up, carrying it, but you could not handle the ark of God. One of their priests stumbled touched it with his hand, and it was struck dead immediately. And you know what the Bible says happened next? David said, I'm not taking that to my house. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the Bible says that he was afraid and in awe of God. And so he carried it to another little village to be manned, to be cared for, but now the time has finally come, and he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And he's had time to go through a time of consecration, not only of himself, but of the, the Jews who are in Jerusalem. A time of preparation. And as they come in, this is a symbol again of the presence of God with his people. And this is one of those periods in David's life where David is expressing his love and devotion to God. And he's being as obedient as he can be. And the ark comes in and the... The Jews rejoice and they celebrate. Not all of them, but most of them rejoice and they celebrate. And it is a time of worship and a time of praise. Worship is important for us. Last week we spent time talking about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It is the weight and the majesty, the reality of God's presence. Seen at various times in the Old Testament, revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ, we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. John chapter 1 verse 14. And now God's dwelling place is in His people. And you and I are to be the manifestation, which means the showing forth, the, the, the ex- expression the reality of God's glory among His people as His presence indwells us. And that's important. It's important for us as His people because we have to be those who reflect His glory. I, I, I mentioned to you last week in passing to go to Second Corinthians chapter 3 and study that little section, particularly starting about verse 15 and following where it talks about the glory of God. Moses had to conceal his face because he had been in God's presence and the glory shone, and yet that glory began to fade away. And those who are exposed to truth but don't receive it still have a veil. They still don't see God as revealed. But those who come to God in repentance and faith, those who come to God by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendering their lives to Him, that veil is removed. And we have a face-to-face expression with God. We, listen, this is amazing. It's amazing truth that becomes so mundane for us and so humdrum for us. We can know God. We can know the creator of the universe who spoke all things into being. And we can know him personally. And we can know him intimately. And knowing him should evoke in us praise and adoration and worship. But in our day, we live under the constant pressure to forget the glory of God. To forget his might, his weight, his worth. You know, he's a higher power. You know, God, higher power. God, he's a cuss word and a byword to too many people. God, he's, you know, he's our friend. He's just all right with me. Oh, God's good. I mean, you know, when I need something, I can call on God. He's promised me stuff, so I can just name it, and he'll, he'll, He's obligated to give it to me. Or sometimes we just think of God as this kind of nebulous force that exists and not a personality. And most of us are glad He's there. We call on Him when we're in trouble. 
but we don't know Him. We don't really know Him. We don't know Him as we should know Him. So this morning, the, this goal is simple. It's, it's, it's to uh, understand more about what worship is, to equip us to worship, and that we may worship. And worship is needful because worship is an aspect of religion that is really difficult to understand, particularly for the unbeliever. After all, we have problems. We have troubles. There are financial problems. There are relationship problems. There are illnesses and sickness. There is sin and hard in the world. And so a lost person says, how can you worship a God that lets these things happen? And who do you know that demands praise and worship? Do you know people who say, you have to respect me, you have to be in awe of me, you have to praise me, you have to worship me? There have been rulers in the past. There are petty rulers in the job (laughs) and in different places where we may work or where we may serve. But everybody that we know that demands some sort of praise or reverence or awe, those are the ones who are needy. It is a prideful human that craves adulation and homage. And that need is rooted in our insecurity or in our insufficiency. And yet God is not needy and God is not insecure and God is all-sufficient. So let's take again a moment to talk about worship, genuine worship, the kind of worship that God desires and requires. Now, I started to just give you a Greek lesson, and I know that that just thrills you no end. So I'm going to give you a 60-second Greek lesson. You ready? There are two words, primarily interpreted worship, in the New Testament. Proskuneo is one of them. Proskuneo, and the other one is liturgia. Now, the reason I tell you proskuneo is to lavish affection upon, literally to bend the knee towards one or to kiss the hand towards one. It shows adoration and honor. Liturgia is service. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, what? Service of worship, your reasonable act of worship. And it deals with the externals of worship. The reason I bring them out, because both words apply. One deals with what's going on in our heart. The other one deals with what happens with our lips and our hands and our mouth and the external, the internal and the external. Jesus himself mentioned this. He mentioned it in Matthew chapter 15 when he was confronting the, the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 15 verse 8, He is condemning them and quoting Isaiah to them. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said what? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is from me. So there's the external part. They honor me with their lips, but their heart, the internal part, is far from me. In vain do they worship me. That means there's no worship at all. It's not worship. It's zero. Zero worship. Teaching is doctrine, the commandments of men. And we see that there's the internal, the heart of worship, and then there's the external, the expression of worship. And so I want us to kind of start with the internal, what is taking place in the heart. Do you remember when Jesus met the woman at the well of Sychar? you remember the conversation that they had? She said, your folks say we should worship in Jerusalem. Our folks say over on Mount Gerizim. Jesus in John Chapter 4, verse 23 and 24 says this, The hour is coming and is now here, now here, Jesus is there, when true worshipers will worship the Father, can you finish the sentence, in, say it out loud, 
in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. The hour is coming, and now is, when he who worships the Father will worship in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit is not contrasted in this circumstance with the body, but it is combined with truth. What that means is we, not, we have to worship God in truth. We have to see God as he has revealed himself, not as we would like him to be in some sort of personal idolatry or God that we create or re- redefining God to fit our desires, but to see him as he has revealed himself, a right appreciation of God's worth, treasuring God above all things the response of the heart that flows from from the knowledge of the mind when the mind is rightfully understanding god and the heart is rightfully treasuring and valuing god it is loving god proskuneo it's a heart condition i love him so here's the question (laughs) this is i don't want this to be technical i want this to be practical I want you to understand that there's an inside part and an outside part to this. And the inside part is that we have to fall in love with God and see His worth and His value. And we can't redefine Him as the man upstairs. We can't redefine Him as a higher power. We can't redefine Him as good old Grandpa God up there in His rocking chair here to watch out for me and He's prepared a place and I'm going to go home one day. But He is transcendent. Are you familiar with the word transcendent? It transcends. He's above. He is might and majesty and power. He is more than we can grasp or that we can understand. And we have to get our minds around the holiness and the might of God. And you can't know everything there is about God to know, but you can know everything that He has revealed about Himself to you. Our problem is that we limit that. We don't know Him. We don't know Him. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Who is able, when we talked about last week, who is able to build a house for God? For the highest heavens cannot contain Him. Solomon said, Who am I that I should build a house for them? Except to burn incense, except to worship Him, except to love Him. So let's talk about what the Bible says about the transcendence or the holiness or the might of God. Just listen. Do this exercise with me. And I would encourage you to close your eyes You might have to stand up to close your eyes. But I want you to just listen. Really listen to these words. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, He does not dwell in temples made with hands. It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel the heavens and the earth? Isaiah 40, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
this God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens, the splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in, him, in His place. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on the high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite or the penitent. Habakkuk praising, praying says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Our God is great and greatly to be praised. Father, we sit here in this room, just folks, just people, gathered in this place at this time. But we acknowledge a few things. We acknowledge that You are God. You are supreme and mighty and sovereign and holy. There is no one like You. You created all that there is. I love the language that You gave to David and that You gave to Isaiah. When it speaks of your might, how that you spoke a word and the universe was created. You spread the stars across the heaven like the breadth of your hand by scattering them and you know every one of their names. I am so grateful that there's none can hide from you. Not even our thoughts. You know the thoughts and the intents, the meditations, the secret places of our own heart. We can deceive ourselves, but no one, we cannot deceive you. You see even to the small places that we would hide. I'm grateful that there is no place above the heavens or in the earth or under the earth that you do not go. I'm grateful that your eyes go to and fro across the face of the earth seeking people who are seeking you. I'm grateful that you have grace and that you have mercy and that you bestow that grace and that mercy upon us. You owe us nothing and you need nothing. And yet you choose to give And you choose to receive for your glory and for our good. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to look at the first line. And we must, in our developing worship, never lose sight of the awe and reverence that God deserves. Never lose sight of what it means to fear God, never lose sight. Do you know what the word ungodly means? It literally means those who have no reverence or respect for God. And how many times in our daily lives, whether we gather or whether we don't gather, how many times are we just simply ungodly in our behavior? No reverence, no respect, no acknowledgement of God. We are in danger of losing all. We, like the Pharisees, adopt behaviors that seem prudent 
We focus on the externals, but we lose sight of the reality of who God is. And an aspect of worshiping and truth that we must continually cultivate is an awareness of the awesomeness of God, a sense of wonder, and a sense of humility. How many of you have visited the Marvel Universe? Several of you are smiling. You've been there, right? There's a scene that I like in one of the Marvel movies. There is a, a, a couple of Greek gods who are superheroes in this movie. Well, kind of. The superpowers in this movie. There's Thor. You guys remember Thor with his hammer? What's his brother's name? Loki. Um, Loki is a, quote, god of mischief. He's a god that gets in trouble a lot and gets others in trouble a lot. There's this big showdown between Loki and Hulk. You guys remember the scene? The Hulk is this big green gamma-radiated guy, and he's really strong. And Loki is talking to him, and he says, Hey, I'm a god. And so Hulk reaches down and picks him up and slams him on the floor back and forth. (laughs) And finally buries him in the ground and looks at him and says, puny God, and turns around and walks away. All right, now, I found that very amusing scene. I thought it was great. You didn't have to like it. You certainly don't have to watch the movies. All right? But I got to thinking, the way we talk about God, the way we think about God, the little bit of time that we spend praising God or acknowledging God, we treat God as though He were a puny God, not worthy of our respect and uh, and reverence. Now, I'm not equating God Almighty to Loki. I want you to understand, not the same, not the same. But here's the good news. We don't have a puny God. We have a God of might and majesty and power and inestimable, inestimable worth. And He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our heart. So how do you maintain, how do you grow in the knowledge of the awe and the reverence that God deserves? I'm going to tell you, you have to do it by getting into the Word of God, by looking around. Is it enough to see a sunset and appreciate it? Suzanne and I are camping this weekend. Uh, Friday night, there was a beautiful sunset setting over Lake Hartwell. So my brother and sister-in-law and Suzanne and I walked down to the edge of the lake. The sun was setting. It was one of those red nights. You know what I mean? And the lights, the sun were going up. There's a little island out there. The water lapping at our feet. We were standing in, it wasn't sand. It was just nasty mud. But we were standing at the edge. And we were enjoying God's creation. Is that a good way for us to value who God is? I'll tell you, God does reveal himself in creation. Scripture tells us over and over. Romans chapter 1. God reveals himself in creation. But he has revealed himself in more than creation. He revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, the living word of God. He reveals himself in his written word that lives, that he has given to us and preserved for us. I've got some friends who are lost who take pictures of sunsets and post them on social media. It's their thing. And they don't value the God of creation. We have to go beyond simply the general revelation of God and see God in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And see God as He's revealed in His Word. And so we grow in the awe and reverence of God. There's also shared experience. One of my favorite songs years ago was The Wonder of It All. I don't know if you're familiar with it. 
But he speaks, and the writer writes a song. He says, there's the wonder of sunset at evening, the wonder of sunrise I see, but the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me, the wonder of it all. It blows my mind, the wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. And here's the good news also. He knows you and you can know Him. We know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, and John chapter 1 tells us, and the Scriptures resound with it, prophesied in the Old Testament, realized in the Gospel, reflected upon, and, and continued to be communicated through the epistles. So if you're here and you don't know God, the way to know God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want you to know Him. Jesus, God in the flesh, who came to give life to you. But for those of us who are believers, and this sermon is for those of us who have come to know Christ through repentance and faith. For those of us who are believers, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter exhorted the congregation in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, which is the end of that chapter where it talks about the punishment of God that is coming and God's delay because God's not willing that any should perish. And it talks about the love of Christ and he's closing up this letter and he says, but we need to continually grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second Peter three eighteen, To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So that's the second point on your outline. You need to strive to know more of Him every day. How do you worship? You worship by knowing Him more. You worship by striving to see Him more. You certainly want to see Him in creation and be more aware of the works of His hands. But you have to say, Lord, show me Yourself in Your Word. And you read the Scriptures. And you don't just read it for history or to check something off your list, but to say, God, I want to know You more. You read it as He shows, he shows Himself to you in Your union with Him in salvation, but, he, but also in communion and fellowship. And, uh, and so this is going to get pretty pedantic, but I want you to know that you ought to be talking to Him. Um, guys, how does your wife know you love her? All right, we're going to abbreviate the last part of this message, but I, I want you to get this. How does your wife know you love her? Pardon? Rubber feet. You demonstrate it, okay? You demonstrate it. A hug, a kiss, affection, attention, gazing in each other's eyes. Here's, a, here's, what, here's something I want you to do. Married couples, here's something I want you to do. I want you to sit across the table from your spouse sometime today, and just look them in the eye. Don't say a word. Just look them in the eye. How long has it been since you looked with adoration on the person on this earth that ought to be the most important person in your life? You know what it is to look upon someone with affection? To look upon someone with love? There are some paintings that I wanted to show. I've I, I decided not to show them today. But one of the... Uh, Paintings was simply titled, She Looks at Love. And it's a portrait of a woman who is just looking with this look of affection on their face. You know what it's like to feel affection and to express affection? 
And as you get to know someone more, you learn there's more to value. Now, with imperfect people, there's also graces that you have to extend and mercies that you have to extend. But with a holy God, He does not need grace from us and He does not need mercy from us. We need it from Him. And He is perfect. And we are to look upon Him with adoration and affection. We're to fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to communicate that. The more we know Him, the more we love Him, the more we let others know. Now, why would a holy God demand praise? Why would a holy God demand praise? Is praise a common thing for people, by the way? Don't we, don't we praise food that we like? We had bologna and cheese curds this weekend at the campground. I'm not going to praise that for you. We also had barbecue. Mm, I'll praise that all day long. But we praise, we, we praise our kids. So we praise our kids when they do something that's exciting to us or they play in a basketball game or a track meet or, or something, and we, a football game, and we, we praise them for the good that they do. We praise our, our parents and people that we love. We even praise restaurants. We, we, we express appreciation and adoration all the time. So why would we worship a God who does not need anything from us? Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I found really helpful. It's in his book, Reflections Upon the Psalms. And it says, The most and obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, had strangely escaped to me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment or approval or of giving honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless their shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into jacket. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses like Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather. Wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages. Children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where, intolerably, adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. They say things like, look. Isn't she lovely? Or wasn't it glorious? Or don't you think that's magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of the thing or the one that they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. So what's the answer to why we should be okay with God deserving our praise? It's because He's praiseworthy. Because we praise what we admire, we praise what we love, we praise what we value. He is most admirable, most lovable, most valuable. And our praise flows from our hearts through our lips in our lives. Our praise not only expresses, but completes our enjoyment. It is God's appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete 
until it is expressed. And so, here's the external part of praise, or at least one of them. Speak. Speak to Him. Speak to yourself. Speak to others about Him. Praising Him. Isn't God good? He's good indeed. Years ago, I was at a camp meeting, and I'm, I won't tell you what that is if you don't already know, but it was a, a worship service, if you will. And we had a worship leader, and he was leading us in a song. And the song had the chorus that simply said, I love him, I love him, because he first loved me, and purchased my salvation on Calvary's tree. Now, with apologies to those of you who can sing, I want you guys to do this with me. Will you do this? The, the chorus goes, I love him, I love him, because he first loved me and purchased my salvation on Calvary's tree. All right, that was rehearsal. Are you ready? I love Him, I love Him, because He first loved me and purchased my salvation on Calvary's tree. Now I want you to do something else. And this is what that song leader did that day. And it helped me. And I hope it helps you. I want you to stand up. And I want you to change third person him to second person you. And I want you to sing that same song to the Lord. Will you do that? Let's stand. You have to sing. Not to me. Not to impress the people to your right or to your left. But if you haven't told the Lord today that you love him. Here's a great opportunity. Are you ready? I love you. I love you. Because you first loved me. And purchased my salvation on Calvary's tree. Father, as inadequate as the expression of our adoration sometimes seems and sometimes feels. It is what completes our acknowledgement of your praise, of your worthiness, of your value, of your awe, of, of, of your weight and your glory. And so, Father, I pray that you will receive this humble attempt at praise for what it is, an expression of appreciation perfect stumbling children acknowledging that your father transcendent God yes but also intimate dad that you welcome us into your presence that you don't diminish yourself that we might know you but that father you enable us to to get glimpses of your glory you reveal yourself to us so that we can see you and walk with you help us to be like we sang in the first part of this service help us to be like Moses on the mountain say we we won't leave. We don't want to go anywhere you don't go. We want to know more of you and to 
see your glory. Father, be glorified in us. Receive these praises from your children as they are.